Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Human beings have competing influences that govern their behaviors. On one side, we have the neural networks and regions of the brain that guide us towards survival, pure and simple. The earliest structures in the brain, the brain stem and the midbrain, create behaviors associated with fight, flight, shutting down when we're in shock and so forth. The sympathetic nervous system and the ancient dorsal parasympathetic are structured to guarantee our survival at all, you know, at all costs. And those inclinations are generally to to take care of oneself, to disconnect whenever there's conflict or stress, to avoid anything that in our life has previously been wounding or, and so many of us will have these very strong inclinations to run, bolt, or fight, or confront. And um, there's, uh, when we're in these states, when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, we might become very hypervigilant, on guard, feeling threatened. The blood starts to, the heart rate goes up, the blood pumps harder, our blood pressure climbs, and uh, our thoughts race, but it's repetitive thoughts, not new thinking outside of the box. It's just repeating the same thoughts over and over again. Now, competing with these systems for our to guide our behavior is the far more recent social engagement system, which is one of these previous systems I talked about are literally hundreds of millions of years old. The modern social engagement system, which uses the cranial nerves of the face, to express emotions and ideas and language and facial emotions is very, very new. It's about a few million years old. In terms of evolution, that's a blink of an eye. And uh, so this social engagement, which is the higher parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, building alliances, talking through issues, mutual dependency, uh, relaxing and facing and working through a conflict uh, requires higher dorsolateral function. Unfortunately, when we're stressed out or when we, are, we feel threatened or when we feel judged or when we feel shame, these, uh, when we neurocept unconsciously perceive danger or any form of uh, rejection, it's very, very difficult to use the dorsal lateral to go into the, the ventral parasympathetic to stop and connect and express our feelings on our face. We're more likely to fall back into the sympathetic arousal where our, our arms and our legs will start to get tight and where we'll start to feel hot. And if anything we want to say, it's like, fuck you or whatever, you know? <laughs> so these are the competing uh, essentially structures 
social engagement wants us to connect and wants us to drop our defenses and to open up and be vulnerable and express our feelings. The withdrawal states of the nervous system want us to be defended, want us to be rigid, want us to essentially disconnect or make ultimatums and just say, you know what, I can't deal and be either seek distance or to cling at all costs for love, but not to work through an issue. So in all spiritual practice, it doesn't matter what spiritual practice, it doesn't necessarily mean Buddhism, it could be any form of spiritual practice. The goal is to deactivate the fight, flight, survival at all costs, sympathetic, nervous, ancient systems just to just to protect me and damn the consequences of my relationships. It's to encourage uh, mutuality, uh, vulnerability. And so in the Dharma, which is just one of many examples, uh, the ways this is done is by emphasizing one, developing harmless relationships in our lives so that we have this practice in place of learning how to relax around people and cooperate. If you can do it in a workplace, if you can do it in, um, with colleagues, with roommates, then when you're in a heated interpersonal situation, the more you have essentially experience of not being harming or not killing off relationships, you can work through conflicts. Um, on the other hand, it's also uh, in the Dharma is an emphasis upon learning how to self-soothe in meditation. So concentrating on the breath or learning how to be mindful of your body and deactivate your your stomach when it's really tight or your you know your body when it's in a defended state where you're you don't feel you can relax and attune to someone else. The key issues though are right intention and right effort and uh, in the Dharma, right intention is the is setting a goal to put aside our addictions and all of those strategies that we rely on to disconnect from other people and to not express our emotions and work through our affect states with another human being. We all have these addictions. You know, it can be turning on Netflix. It can be drugs, alcohol. It could be shopping. It could be. Um, uh, eating, you know, food. All of these can be strategies to, instead of returning to the vulnerable, interpersonal, social engaged approach state, can be ways to regulate our feelings without turning to another human being and working through conflicts. And right effort in the Dharma is the ongoing endeavor to, and this is quoting from the Dharma, to prevent unskillful mind states from fully arising. And what that means is taking inventory of what unskillful tendencies are in us and knowing what they look like, what they feel like, and then being on guard so that when they start to arise, we can essentially deactivate the fight, flight, withdrawal, and stop, self-soothe ourselves, and then turn towards those that we have some conflict or difficulty with and work through rather than always rely on either cut off 
or immediately forgiving or immediately just not talking about it, whatever our strategies are, but many of us will do anything but to work through a conflict in a relationship. So in the Dharma, ignorance of our intentions is a, which is, Ouija is a significant source of suffering in our life. Uh, to quote a monk that I studied with quite a bit, uh, um, Ajahn Jeff, otherwise known as Tanisara Bhikkhu, if we can't be honest with ourselves about our intentions, how can we perceive our underlying addictions and cravings in time to abandon them? Ignorance is caused by a lack of self-awareness and a lack of self-honesty to look hard at what's going on with us. The path requires we be truthful to ourselves in areas where self-honesty is most difficult. Major psychologists since Freud, Jung, Melanie Klein, uh, Fairburn, uh, Winnicott, pretty much everyone <laughs> uh, noted that in order to begin have any stride or transformation in life, we have to be willing to look at our shit, right? They didn't use that phrase, but and where I grew up, that was the phrase, to be willing to look at your shit. Um, the brain does have a vast array of neural circuits to let us know when we've, we've abandoned a relationship too quickly, when we've gotten too angry too quickly, when we have uh, essentially done something to sabotage a bond. They're, because our species, its entire evolution was based upon mutual dependence. Our entire species as hunter-gatherers was spent in very small clans. You would spend your adult life with five or six other people, and it was essential for your survival and their survival that we have good relationships and that we work through the small conflicts and not essentially disconnect or maintain grudges. If you went out and were gathering food and you didn't collect any food and one person did in the clan but they didn't tell you about it you might starve or if they didn't let you know that you know a member of another clan was about to kill you you'd be in trouble so it was of utmost importance for human beings throughout our uh, evolutionary history in our species for the last uh, 200,000 years, it was essential that we be able to work through conflict. So over the course of that time, new circuits in the brain, they're not anywhere near as old or as powerful as the circuits that survive, but these circuits created uh, pro-tribal influences. On the negative, they create feelings of guilt and remorse when we do something that we regret that harms an alliance, a bond, a connection. And the areas of the brain that do that are the right orbital frontal, the insula, the um, some part of the temporal lobe, I forget which. They're largely right hemispheric, but they make us feel shitty when we do something or when we give up too quickly or when we just take care of ourselves first uh, without any consideration of the other. We also have uh, structures deep in the brain that reward us for bonding with others. The bonding center is the anterior cingulate and it raises and lowers your 
um, serotonin, but even more importantly, your uh, endorphins. So you feel really good when you are really closely bonded with someone. And if you fall in love, oxytocin, of course, will uh, be released and you'll feel really beneficial as well. So we do have these essentially these deeply ingrained neural processes that reward us and also uh, slightly make us feel bad when depending upon the quality of our actions especially in our attachments. The problem is that the, the most vital apparatus to take inventory which is our conscious left hemisphere which is capable of inhibiting actions and can stop and can review what we've done and can have an overview, a detached overview from the dorsal lateral. The problem was, is that hemisphere in general doesn't like to second guess ourselves. Even though it's capable of it, even though it's the one area of the brain that can go, hold on for a second, I think I'm being a little, I'm being a little defensive here, or I'm being a little, uh, I'm, I'm uh, essentially overreacting or my emotions are a little bit disproportionate to what I've experienced. That area of the brain doesn't really like to question what we've done. In fact, as Gazaniga, the great neuroscientist, have noted, the left hemisphere prefers to simply be an interpreter that tells us and, and rationalizes why we did what we've done. It doesn't like to really second guess us. Because generally in our evolution, if we felt the urge to kill someone in our clan, it was no longer the time to second guess ourselves. It meant that something really bad has happened, or if we had, you know, if we were in the drama of suddenly uh, feeling unsafe and didn't want to stop and have us, you know, step back and say, but wait, am I being a little irrational here, or is this my tendency to cut? or seek distance in relationship or to avoid intimacy by uh, dodging connection or whatever, etc. Rational thought tends to justify and rationalize rather than to take stock and to look. And then there's, on top of that, it's not, it's not surprising that most of us don't want to do it because one, if we grew up in any Judeo-Christian spiritual practice, uh, taking stock is always associated with this harsh, judgmental, the sense that some god will judge us and that we'll, we'll come up like on the losing end and it means there's something wrong with our character, or our personality. Many of us when we were called before our parents to explain why we did the things that we did, didn't associate it with a happy ending. It was not one of our favorite times when we looked over our actions and got to, and were asked to explain, well, was this really towards the benefit of your sister when you, you know, when you threw blocks at her, which I used to do all the time when I was a kid, or uh, steal their cookie, or steal their allowance, or whatever, you would do is that something that was really building a, a secure relationship with your sister. Most of us associate being asked to look at our own actions and our role in relational dramas 
as a form of punishment and we and if we have any harsh self-critical voices in us which mo many of us to say the least do then it can be associated with just one more reason to beat ourselves up and to feel less than about ourselves so taking inventory has a uh, is nobody I, nobody's idea of a good time that's the short of it Furthermore, on top of all the fact that the brain, that nobody likes to do it and the brain likes to self-justify, I didn't even go into some of the, the well-studied now cognitive biases that get in the way of, having, of allowing us to see clearly the role of our actions in uh, conflicts and in interpersonal dramas. Um, I'll read you some of them because I think some of them are kind of hilarious. They're so accurate. And when I read this, I was like, guilty, 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 you know. So, of myself, you know. So, the fundamental attribution error is when other people act poorly, it's due to their core personality. But when I act poorly, <laughs> it's because I was under a lot of stress. <laughs> so, if somebody blocks the subway door, they're an asshole, pure and simple, their entire life has been one acid entity from beginning to end. But if I stop in the doorway to scan where to walk into the subway, then I'm just a beleaguered strap hanger who's like under a lot of stress and has had a hard day and in no way reflects who I am. The self-serving bias is that I am essential in all my endeavors, but when bad, if they're, if they're successful, but if I'm part of something that turns out really bad, I played a very minor role and really wasn't involved at all. It was their decisions that made it all go to shit. The control fallacy is that we attribute the poor actions to external controls, like I can't help it if I was short-tempered with you. I have a lot going on. Confirmation bias. We tend to cherry-pick info that conforms all that confirms all of our unconscious beliefs about ourselves and about others. So, for example, Trump supporters um, will essentially watch news outlets like Fox and Breitbart because it will give them inf information that will justify their bizarre choices in uh, who they vote for. And I, of course, read nothing but The Nation, The Guardian, so I'm, of course, uh, unconsciously cherry-picking the information that I get to justify my democratic socialist beliefs. Um, the halo effect. Because I do good in one area of my life means I can't be doing bad anywhere else or be causing any harm anywhere else in my life. The false uniqueness bias is that what I do is vital and unique. And this is seen where you know everybody believes that when they leave their job, their job will fall apart, that they're the vital cog that's keeping it all together. And when I leave home for college, I don't know what's gonna happen to my family because None of them will function without me. Uh, the fairness bias is the belief that I know what's really fair and you don't, etc., etc. So you can see that all of our biases 
do one thing, which is they're set up to not have us accurately step back and to take any essentially objective glance or distance glance at our role in conflicts. Now, I need to say a couple of things here. Number one, in the Dharma, in the Buddhist perspective, there is no core soul or personality. We are constantly, in the Buddhist perspective, we are seen as constantly changing, that we are not, there's no like underlying personality that unifies us. And therefore, in a Buddhist perspective, taking inventory never uncovers anything bad about us. It's simply the actions themselves. But from a Buddhist perspective, there's nothing ever to feel ashamed about. There's simply behaviors to let go of. But none of the behaviors that we want to look at are in any way indicative of who we are. They're just defensive strategies we relied on that are no longer useful to us. And then we let go and it in no way is indicative of ourselves as a human being. So immediately from that perspective, we're all off the hook. None of us are judged or found out to be bad people in doing this work. The second is that in many 12-step programs, they language inventory in this really negative, judgmental character defects, this sense that there's something really damaged about us. And in, again, from a dharmic perspective, none of that is true. We're taking inventory simply to look at whatever role we've had so that we can acknowledge and, and spot our tendencies in, that make conflicts worse rather than resolve them. Um, another thing to note is when we take inventory, that doesn't mean that we are the ones who did any that were the cause of the bulk. In fact, uh, Buddhist monks, when they live together, are constantly, and nuns, are constantly taking inventory of their actions, but never from the perspective of it means that they are in any way lacking or less than. And it's never from the perspective of, if I'm doing this work, it means that, that I'm the one responsible. All relational dramas generally have two participants, not one author. And to, we don't go into any inventory or any self-evaluation from any perspective of it means I'm at fault. None of this is about fault, ever. It's simply about each of us being willing at times to step back and look at what our role has been when friendships, uh, romantic relationships, work relationships, roommate relationships, uh, family relationships hit strains and uh, we're at an impasse or we haven't been able to work through it or feel that we can uh, understand why they got progressively more dysfunctional. So again, none of this is about blame and if you do uncover something, when, you, when I do or when we do an inventory and being in a long-term relationship requires this kind of work, the most important tool then is to be able to forgive, you know, from uh, ourselves for having defensive behaviors. We all do, as I said, the brain is wired 
to be defensive and survive, to disconnect, to fight or flight, to, uh, and especially if we had a trauma previously in our life, all of our defensive behaviors will be structured to prevent traumas from happening again. If we've been in a situation where we felt abandoned, then when we're in childhood, if we are feel abandoned in adult life, we will either become distraught or emotionally charged, dysregulated. We will feel uh, a, a great degree of threat or um, a feeling of terror at some times people feel. And the key is to be very forgiving because none of this is in any way means that there's something wrong with us. All human beings' psyche, psyches are structured to prevent traumas from happening again. All defensive behaviors are essentially to protect ourselves. And the key in growing to be capable of being in a sustained, lasting relationship where we work through conflict is being willing to see those defensive behaviors, acknowledge them, without any sense of shame and then being willing to put them down and try to work through and that feels very naked and vulnerable because our defenses make us feel safe and they are wired by the strongest circuits in the brain how do we know when we are in the midst of how, do, how can we given how little the brain wants to uncover our hidden defenses, our patterns of disconnection or survival. How do we know when it's there? Well, we all have one great canary in the mine shaft in our minds that indicate. And uh, I can tell you, was doing from doing counseling work for a very long time, uh, it's always apparent. Uh, the mind, when we have stumbled or we're beginning to have a nascent realization that some behavior of ours is too defensive or is not conducive to lasting, mutually cooperative, uh, resonant connections. When we've done something that's unskillful, the first process that will happen is that we'll start to feel unconsciously a sense of guilt or remorse, but then we will cover up as a defense that guilt and remorse with self-justification and rationalization. So any time in life where in the aftermath of an event, we start replaying over and over and over again a relational moment of an event where there was a breakup or a fight or an argument or a disconnection and we find ourselves re-justifying in our minds or rationalizing again and again why we said or did what we did. It's a surefire sign that it's indicating a need to conceal, cover up a sense of remorse. So right there, there's like a flag, a flare that's going up saying, hey, there's something I need to investigate. To when we talk about the event, we will always need to over explain our thinking when we're at a place where we start to feel remorse about a certain behavior. We'll start to explain to the people we're talking about it. And then I decided, well, I just, I just told him to fuck off. And you know what I was thinking right then? 
And I, I did that because there was all this stuff that happened, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so this need to rationalize, to justify, to explain, to validate is an indication that we're defending against a degree of discomfort about an action that is clearly in some way uh, bespeaks a tendency, and I just said bespeaks aloud, that's, I don't know what's happened, I'm clearly having a stroke, but um, it indicates that we are, that we're covering up. Uh, also, of course, when there's physical tells, when a certain when we reflect on the image and you, there's a slight shiver, what the Buddha called a tapa, that sense of tightening around the shoulders, uh, the art, the body is, is just tightening, because remembering that action makes us feel physiologically uncomfortable, we will start to feel that sense of defensiveness, that, the, that sense of I'm not okay. So, to do this work, we have to be willing to, one, note when there's an event where we replay it a lot and where we're constantly justifying, uh, rewriting, retelling ourselves why what we did was right. And then we have to stop. Now, it doesn't mean every time that happens, it means there's something we've done that's worth, but it means there's a likelihood that there's something there. And then we stop and we look what's beneath all that verbiage, all that inner chatter, the left hemisphere's attempt to cover it up. And then we use our rational minds to go down beneath and observe what we feel in our body when we think about the event. And if we start to see that there's this tightening, this sense of uh, rigidity in the shoulders, locking of the jaw, when I feel guilty, my, there's something that happens in my forehead. I don't know what, but I just start to feel all of the muscles, or I'm not sure I have muscles in my forehead, that's kind of gross, but I, I start to feel this furrowing of the brow and this, this kind of, you know, feeling. And I can, it all, it's always clear. And then what's most important is we go into that experience and we ask, okay, what do I need to feel safe so that I don't, I didn't need to do this? What, what need wasn't I meeting? What was, how wasn't I taking care of myself so I could have worked through this rather than relied on distance or sarcasm or shutting down or uh, just immediately forgiving someone when I'm not that, what, what did I need that I wasn't giving myself so I could have worked through this conflict? So that's exactly what we're going to do in our meditation today. We're going to put all of these tools into practice. So um, I hope something was interesting tonight. If not, I'll try to be more uh, clever <laughs> next week. And so find a really comfortable seated position. Just retrieve your awareness. So imagine you're reeling back your awareness into your body. So it's coming in through your eyes and then we're gonna lower our awareness into our throat, 
down to our chest, down to our belly, just feeling our awareness going to the center of the body. take a few breaths to address the uh, settings of the autonomic nervous system, just trying to use some very basic self-soothing tools to allow us to relax into our practice. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinch all the cranial nerves in your face so that's the muscles tightening the nose pinching the mouth, furrowing the brow, clenching the jaw, anything you need to do to make it really tight and uncomfortable. And then as you breathe out slowly, relax, uh, soften the forehead, release any clenching in the mouth, and just uh, allow, encourage your eyes to float in the eye sockets like they're two warm pools of water. Each eye socket, like a little sensory deprivation tank, and your eyes are just floating in there. They're no longer following or moving about. They're just settling. And when the eyes settle, the mind tends to follow. The optic nerve, of course, activates attention so you can settle it attention tends to settle and then for our second complete in-breath through the nose lift up the shoulders tense the muscles in the arms and in the legs all the at the limbs associated with arousal and activation and then as you breathe out slowly Rotate your shoulders back and drop your arms. They're now completely lifeless. And your shoulders are back so your chest is open and very spacious. When your chest is open, the vagal brake slows down your heart rate, your heart rate and your blood pressure plummets. It's part of the vagal vagus nerve system. And then for our third and final breath in the series, just take another complete in-breath. And as you breathe in, expand your belly out like it's your belly that's pulling in your breath. And then as you breathe out slowly, just soften the abdominal muscles to the point where your belly feels really pliant and relaxed. So, your belly goes out with the in-breath and then relaxes. It expands with the in-breath and goes and relaxes with the out. 
And for the rest of the practice, try to incline your breath so that the exhalations are twice as long as the inhalations. Interestingly, when we're breathing out, we activate the parasympathetic and the vagal nerve releases acetylcholine and relaxes. When we gulp air, when we breathe in heavily, it activates the arousal structures, sympathetic. So to calm and soothe ourselves, we want to just breathe out as long as possible. And so smoothly and softly that we're unaware when the outbreath ends. It's so long and smooth and subtle. And then trying to cultivate a state of mind where you've arrived at your favorite location in the world and it's the first day of a vacation. So maybe you're at the beach, it's you found a spot, the perfect location. Or maybe it's in the mountains and you're sitting in a hammock. It could be that you are in a couch in a country house far away from New York. But you just arrived at the beginning of your vacation, so you have no interest in what's going on back home outside. You have no interest in unresolved issues from your life. You have no ish interest in planning the rest of your life. You really arrived at a time where you just want to fully relax. And all of that tendency of the mind to race ahead of the body, trying to get places before we arrive, trying to figure out and solve everything, keeping schedules about to-do lists and appointments, all of that seems very distant. This is a time in your life when you can fully come to a complete stop and your mind comes in complete alignment with your body. You no longer have any inclination to do anything, go anywhere. You just want to reconnect with what it feels like to be alive. And so we'll just sit here, just connecting with the breath in the body, connecting with the weight of our body landing on the floor, the earth, feeling the limitless space above us, hearing the sounds of the room.
If your mind keeps on wandering, you can count the length of your in-breath and your out-breath. Or try to be aware of more and more body sensations. Observe your body like it's a night sky full of stars. The sensations like the twinkling and vibrancy of night sky. And eventually what will happen, no doubt, quite a number of times is that your mind will wander off in search of thinking of something that's not present. So that's okay when that happens. Every time we wake up from a thought, realize we've drifted off, it's an opportunity to relax back into our bodies, to reconnect with the sensations of being alive, to land in our life. Every time we wake up from a thought, it's a new opportunity to ingrain in our brains a way out of our obsessive thinking. So it's a good thing, not a bad thing. It doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong.
So at this point, bring to mind any relational drama with someone where there remains a degree of tension or avoidance or disappointment or where we haven't been able to work through or express our feelings where there's a tendency to cut off. And for the sake of this practice, don't use a relationship that's too emotionally charged. So if you have, for example, anxious or avoidant attachment and you're in the midst of a difficult relational event with your partner don't use that one or if you feel emotionally abandoned by a parent don't use that just use something that's not too hot not too that is not too capable of triggering too many defenses, too much too many wounds. Just use something that's maybe with a co-worker or a colleague, a roommate, or something that's not too hot, as it were. And then Think of, if you can, the event, the drama with this person, the experiences that you associate with the greatest degree of discord or disappointment. For some of us, it'll be times we felt not prioritized and not seen and not heard or not appreciated or somebody who felt too demanding or judgmental. Bring whatever feels like the most resonant events associated with the tension in the relationship and then further in see if you can connect with some action or words of ours that when we review or replay these actions or words, we start to feel a little tense in our body or we start to have all this languaging in our mind that defends why we said what we said or did what we did. Rather than add more language, just note whatever feelings were there. What did we feel? Threatened, engulfed, abandoned, 
insecure, attack, judge, what was it we were feeling when we undertook these behaviors, these, these actions. And just see the link between certain feelings and certain actions, defensive actions. What do we do when we feel disappointed? None of this is to judge ourselves. None of this is to blame ourselves. This is simply to uncover the behaviors we rely on when we don't feel safe. And some of these behaviors lead us to disconnect, to run from vulnerability, working through issues, some of these behaviors lead to or form patterns of defensiveness that interfere with our ability to maintain or work through conflict. The entire purpose is just becoming aware. What do I do when I feel unseen, uncared for, overwhelmed. What do I need to be mindful of? And lastly, we might want to ask this feeling, what would make us feel safe so that we can stay and work through using words and connection. What do we need to feel safe? How can we take care of ourselves? Do we need more support in our life? Is there anything we could develop any friendships, support, tools, So that when we feel unsafe, we wouldn't rely on these behaviors. We would first cultivate a sense of security and then turn to face those that we have some degree of disappointment with and work through.
if we uncover any defensive behaviors or tendencies, again, the key is in no way to blame or judge ourselves, to know that everybody has their own strategies to protect themselves, and that as we move through our adult lives, growth is directly attributable to the degree that we let go of these defensive behaviors, but we let go without judging ourselves. We simply find new tools to make us be capable of working through conflict. So in a moment I'm going to uh, ring the bell and just take your time opening your eyes. <laughs>